It's Monday, July 19th, and you've got Oz in your ears. I'm Yeri Jero, the host of America's world-class web game, Empire Jeopardy! Today's contestants, he's a vertical urban farmer from battered Washington. Meet Jack Browndart. How's it going, Jack? It's growing, Mr. Jero. Up and up and up. He's the commander of former intelligence in Syncom Dread Sent AFPAC in Hintsville, Arkansas. Meet Lieutenant Colonel Butter Braunschweig. Colonel, what is Syncom Dread Sent AFPAC? Well, I wasn't in long enough to find that out, Yuri. She's a loan denier for Windjammer Gogol in Jockey Shorts, Illinois. Meet Swendaloo Zimmer. Working hard, Swendaloo? Saying no is becoming a real growth business, Mr. Gerald. Well, the rules are as simple as our contestants. Win two and we talk. Lose two and you walk. Tie and you try again next time. Here we go. 221,943,567. What's a number large enough to confuse people? Uh, what is the cost of a B1 stealth fuselage? What is the number of barrels of oil that BP has spilled into the Gulf as of an hour ago? One for you, Jack. I see you stay on top of things. Okay, here we go again. Hiding billions of dollars of debt by not selling what you don't want until you get it back. What is window dressing? That was fast, Swindaloo. Easy. I used to date one of the Lehman brothers when I worked at B of A. Well, we're down to it now. Swindaloo and Jack, maybe we talk. But a Braunschweig, maybe you walk. Yeah. Here it is. Red Cloak for breakfast. What's the latest gluten-free diet? What is taking an early meeting with the Cardinal? What is the Hopi symbol of the cataclysmic purification of America? Bingo! <laughs> yeah, we talked about it all the time at Dreadset. Well, you get to talk some more about it because you tied it up and you'll all be back next time on Empire Jeopardy! I'll bring a PowerPoint with me. Hello there. You've got Oz in your ears because you're listening to Radio Free Oz on RadioFreeOz.com. I'm your host, Peter Bergman, our co-host, David Osman. Hey, Pete, you got a little summer cold there, huh? Uh, yeah, I do have a summer cold, and, and you know, it's it's the middle of July up here on Whidbey Island, and it's 50 degrees, and I'm not unhappy about it. I'll I'll pay for this wonderful weather with a summer cold. <laughs> with a summer cold. I, I hate direct heat. People say, oh, let's get out there and go boating, and let's get suntans, and nope, I just like it. I like it cold and gray. Cold. Well, I like, no, I like, a sun, I like the sun when it's not cold, you know, when there's, when it's, when, when it's not I mean, excuse me, direct, directly hot. You know, it's probably the only place, i got to say, for all those people who are listening to uh, uh, RadioFreeOz.com elsewhere in the universe. Well, which is like everybody else but us. Everybody else is sweltering. It's either 110 or it's raining and it's 110 or it's not raining and it's still wet and 110. I mean, it's, it's, we're very lucky to be here. So all of you folks, mm, please don't move to Whidbey Island, okay? Um it's really nice where you are, too. You yeah. can stay there. Yeah, you can stay there. And, and they said what that this is the hottest first six months of a year ever recorded on the planet. We're talking planet temperature now. Really? Yeah, of course. Of course, people say that's just liberal palaver or that's just uh, scientists, you know, teamed up against us. But no, it's it's. it's no, you don't hotter. want to believe a bunch of scientists, do you? I mean, they're educated people. And we, <laughs> America has learned not to trust the elites out there. Boy, if they know too much, 
Mm-mm. Glenn right Beck there. for president, says the woman <laughs> looking like she just came out of a, off a golf court. And then she says, what did you say? Glenn Beck doesn't want to be president? Well, either did George Washington. And look how that turned out. Well, Democrats appear to have found their plan to defeat Rand Paul. That's uh, Ron Paul's son, I think, named after Ayn Rand. I think he is the love child of Ayn Rand. Here's the strategy. Wind him up and watch him go off the deep end. It's the Rand Paul doll. Remember that guy, Alvin the Man Green, who's the Democratic nominee for... Uh, senator, Democratic senator in South Carolina said, I have a new stimulus plan. Make dolls of me. Well, we should make a doll of Rand Paul and just let it run over the edge, say the Democrats. Ever since Paul won the right to carry his party's flag on May 18th, political types on both sides of the aisle have watched with amusement or chagrin as uh, Kentucky's Republican nominee for Senate has stuck his foot in his mouth again and again. It's organic, though. But less attention has been focused on how the Democratic nominee, State Attorney General Jack Conroy, intends to use Paul's uh, unique rhetorical talents to pull off what most still say would be an upset win in the home of Senate Republican leader Mitch Sour Grapes, tight-ass McConnell. That guy has a look on his face as if somebody's just pinched his, you know, just pinched his bum. The TPM average poll, that's Talking Points Memo poll average, shows Paul leading Conway 48 to 41, but of course it's early in the game. Well, here's the strategy. Conway told the crowd recently that his campaign comes down to more accountability in government, and that led directly into the Rand Paul is so crazy for Kentucky stuff, or too crazy for Kentucky stuff. Take it any way you want. I can tell you, says Conway, what accountability is not. Accountability is not going on national TV and saying it's un-American to go after British petroleum, Conway said. Accountability is not having a worldview where you think that government should be basically uh, never touch business whatsoever. It's a strategy that might seem obvious on the face, but carries with it more than just a little risk. After all, Paul didn't sweep the GOP party by offering ideas that don't fly among a large section of the Republican base. And John McCain didn't defeat President 58 to 41 in that benighted state in 2008 because a lot of Kentuckians aren't prepared to pull the lever for a Republican when the time comes. Hey, they pulled the lever for Sarah Palin. This is a real problem. Still, Conway's strategy to the point, waiting for Paul to embarrass himself, uh, couldn't be coming at a better time for Democrats right now. Paul's comments about BP and the 1964 Civil Rights Act have given Conway ample opportunity to sit back and watch Paul squirm. And it's just simply not enough to let Paul talk, a Conway source said. You have to be sure uh, that you highlight uh, Paul's past statements to get him so he can't wiggle out from under them. Boy, it's amazing how sometimes you can get on national TV, says Paul, and try and say something, how sometimes they mistake what you're trying to say or misconstrue what you're trying to say. Huh? Well... Let me tell you something. Yeah, you're just a victim of the media, Rand. You say that the private sector can determine their own civil rights policy and that the poor in America are lucky they're not poor in some third world nation. And then you get your panties all twisted up when the press reports your comments verbatim. Hey, what is a feckless libertarian clown to do? Wow, Peter, uh, I haven't had a chance to tell you this before we got on the air, but uh, George Tirebiter, 
is coming to visit us here on the island. He does come up here every once in a while. Yes, I've heard that. He's getting pretty old now, uh, but I think I can arrange an interview with him. Well, then I think we should play some some of the Tire Biter opus this week so people will kind of get hip to this man. Okay, okay. You may not know who he is. Well, uh, let me just say for those of you who might not know is that uh, George uh, started uh, when uh, he was a kid in show business uh, back in 1933, and uh, uh, then he moved on to radio. He was a big radio star in the early 40s. Uh, <laughs> he made a lot of B-movies. And uh, I met him, and we all met him on Radio Free Oz. And his life story uh, was so interesting that we just adapted it into the album called Don't Crush That Dwarf, Hand Me the Pliers. George Leroy Tarbiter, this is your life. That's yeah, right. so, I had to apologize to him later for stealing his name. But he didn't mind. He really I, didn't he, mind. He's a good sport. So we'll, we'll, be, we'll be playing some of his opus this mm-hmm. week, and then the following week, I think he, we can probably do an interview. Yeah, I think if we do an interview this weekend, why, on, uh, on Monday, the old fellow will be on this show, and uh, you can ask him anything you want, Pete. And remember, he was vice president of the United States, so he has a lot to say about politics. Dave, he still is. This is from NBC's Chuck Todd, Mark Murray, and Domenico Montanaro. They're talking about the political repercussions of the government's uh, suit against the state of Arizona. Wingnut desert land. The Justice Department filing suit against Arizona's controversial anti-immigration law reignited a political debate that definitely benefits the Republican Party in the short term, but makes things foggy for them in the long run. Yes, things are very foggy for the NOP. And I think if any of the sane members of that cabal, the very few, would be able to pierce that fog and look into the future, they would die of heart attacks. In late May... The NBC Telemundo poll showed that 61% of those polled supported the Arizona law, which is why so many national Republicans and even some Arizona Democrats condemn the administration's suit. But the long-term political outcome could be a different story, given the fact that Latinos are the fastest-growing demographic group in the country. In the same poll, 65% of Latino respondents said they opposed the Arizona law. I find that a little slim, actually. In a way, some argue this could be reminiscent to the Prop 187 that then-Governor Pete Wilson, I remember this, signed into law in 1994. Proposition 187 turned out to be popular in the short term and it helped Wilson win a landslide, you know, um, back to office in 94. But think of this, and you know, I remember that was, Proposition 187 makes the Arizona law look really wussy. I mean, it was like grabbing children out of school if their parents weren't, uh, you know, weren't green carded and throwing them across the border. It was California at its most vicious. Okay, it was very popular in the short run, and Pete Wilson came back to office. He was reelected. But think of this: the Democrats won California just once in presidential contest from 1952 to 1988. But after Wilson's Prop 187, Republicans haven't come close to winning the nation's biggest state. It's not even remotely close to being a swing state. The only thing that's swinging is the NOP National Party that's hanging themselves over this issue. So here's my question, though. Here's the question. Is Obama going after Arizona because he despises the law or because he wants to lock in the Hispanic vote for the next three decades? Or is it just a little of both? 
Bang, bang! <laughs> Just kidding, hi. This is Rod Gunn, spokesmuzzle for the NRA, with five bullseyes we've scored. Killing foes of uncontrolled personal armaments, stone dead. <laughs> you won't have to pay extra insurance on those WMDs in the basement. NRA killed that. Our nation's capital might need a vote in Congress, but that vote comes with a concealed weapon. So, duck. We made sure you can go fully loaded in any national park, and we did it with a stealth attack inside your credit card. We've threatened every senator who might plan on voting for a woman who's too smart to live the rest of her life on the Supreme Court. Since we've already paid off the cowards and shills, we don't have to tell you where the big bang bucks come from. Ha ha ha! NRA. Only four million strong, but we've got the guns. I'm Harry Reid, champion of the Second Amendment. Send me back to the Senate, where I'll continue to be a bagman for freedom. The Bank of America has revealed to the Securities and Exchange Commission that it made six incorrect transactions at the end of the quarters in 2007 to 2009 that hid from view billions of dollars of debt. The disclosure was made in an April letter to the agency uh, that was posted as a regulatory filing, according to the Wall Street Journal. The transactions took place as the bank was trying to gussy up its balance sheet, also known sometimes as end-of-the-quarter window dressing, and meet internal targets. Yeah, if you don't meet those targets at the bank, you're put up against the wall and you become the internal target. Gee, you know, thinking about it, I wish the IRS would let me do a little window dressing with my returns. But alas, uh, I'm only a humble citizen and not a bloated international banking giant. Quote, window dressing isn't illegal in itself. Ah, there you go. Meet my dear friend Gray Ethics. But intentionally masking debt to deceive investors violates regulatory guidelines. B of A said its incorrect accounting wasn't intentional. Uh, Before filing for bankruptcy in 2008, Lehman Brothers used an accounting strategy to remove $50 billion in assets from its balance sheet. Yeah, it was a real clever little thing. Uh, I sell you my assets when actually what I'm doing is just parking them with you. And then the minute the quarter's over, you give them back to me. Right, So uh, they show now as positives, not as negatives. When the public looks at it, when the public stops looking at it, ah, the crap comes back on the sheet. Well, the revelation um, of the letters uh, came to the SEC, and, and they're about to disclose the results of an inquiry into the bank's accounting for repurchase agreements. That's what those are. Uh, it's not a real... It's not a real purchase. And in fact, Lehman Brothers had to go to England to find a law that allowed you to do it in England. And, and, the, and the people there said, this is only English law. So what they did is they opened an English branch or used their English branch and did all the repurchasing, window, you know, dressing, gussying out of England. I mean, total gonifs, thieves, crooks. Let's get down to it. Now, the SEC said that it's mulling stricter disclosure standards in hopes to gain a better understanding of the practice of cleaning up balance sheets for quarterly earnings reports. Mulling? Hopes to? These are not the words of an agency uh, with regulatory fire in its belly. You mull wine and you hope for the best. Their job is to regulate the hell out of the outlaw practices of the multi-billion dollar banks and investment houses that have been bilking us for decades. 
Yeah, I'm no folk singer. I'll try it. I hear the train a coming. It's rolling around the bend, etc., etc., etc. I just want to get you in the mood. Now. Oh, am I in the mood now? Well, yes, down really. in Laguna Niguel, California, Laguna Niguel. The minute I heard it, I knew it was going to be like fried brains on toast. Somehow, there is a 31 year old tradition. I mean, I mean that's ancient. Mooning Amtrak. Heard about this day? I hadn't. I lived down there for a long time. Mooning Amtrak. The story goes something like this. A bet was made in the now landmark bar Mugs Away Saloon. The loser, well, would have to moon the Amtrak train. That was 31 years ago when the tradition is still alive and running. Uh, or, or mooning. Mooning, yes. Yeah. But this time, Mugs Away decided it was the perfect timing to have a charity event to help the handicapped and the disabled. Okay. This is why I finally moved from California. Yep. Okay. But on the other hand, mooning a train doesn't seem that far away from a charity car wash once you've had a few too many at the Mugs Away Saloon, <laughs> all right? The day rolls along and the thrill of revealing your bum um, only builds. The sound of the horn blowing, pants start falling and people scream with excitement. This this reporter says it was his second year there and he's having an even better time. The train, depending on the conductor, would slow down only encouraging the crowds on. You could see people peering out the windows of the train. Unfortunately, the cabs were too dark to get any footage of the humorous sight. Cameras were rolling inside the train and out. If you have any uh, inclination to experiencing yourself as an exhibitionist, this is the time. Yeah, so, and the question is, you know, there, half cheek, full cheek, one cheek, two. Yeah, well, that sounds like a, a Dr. Seuss poem, Half Cheek, One Cheek. Yeah. Half Cheek, One Cheek, Full one Cheek, Two. Yeah. You know, that reminds me, when I lived in Santa Barbara, the Amtrak used to come roaring down and it would uh, slow down as it was coming by the nude beach just it, south of Santa Barbara. It would, right? And uh, stories were that it would lean to the west with all the people running to the windows on that side of the train. So, hey, that daylight flyer can really be a lot of fun. Yeah, especially when the moon comes out. Here's some good news from Barney Frank and Ron Paul. They're doing it together. The crack in the dike has appeared in the military budget dike. Here's what they say, as reported in The Huff. As members of opposing political parties, we disagree on a number of important issues, but we must not allow honest disagreement over some issues to interfere with our ability to work together when we do agree. By far the single most important of these is our current initiative to include substantial reductions in the projected level of American military spending as part of future deficit reduction efforts. For decades, the subject of military expenditures has been glaringly absent from public debate. Yet the Pentagon budget for 2010 is $693 billion more than all other discretionary spending programs combined. Even subtracting the cost of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, military spending still amounts to over 42% of total spending. We're killing ourselves! It is irrefutably clear to us that if we do not make substantial cuts in the projected levels of Pentagon spending, we will do substantial damage to our economy and dramatically reduce our quality of life. Not to mention the reduction of life quality that the military is engaged in all over the planet. 
We are not talking about cutting the money needed to supply American troops in the field, and we are not talking about cutting essential funds for combating terrorism. Immediately after World War II, America took on the responsibility of protecting virtually every country that asked for it. 65 years later, we continue to play that role long after there is any justification for it. And currently, American military spending makes up approximately 44% of all expenditures worldwide. Europeans boast about their social model with its generous vacations and early retirements, its national health care systems and extensive welfare benefits, contrasting it with the comparative harshness of American capitalism. Europeans have benefited from low military spending protected by NATO and the American nuclear umbrella. We believe that the time has come for a much quicker withdrawal from Iraq than the president has proposed. We both voted against that war, but even for those who voted for it, there can be no justification for spending over $700 billion of American taxpayers' money on direct military spending in Iraq since the war began. In order to create a systematic approach to reducing military spending, we have convened a sustainable defense task force consisting of experts on military expenditures that span the ideological spectrum. The task force has produced a detailed report with specific recommendations for cutting Pentagon spending by approximately $1 trillion over a 10-year period. Mm, man, we can go back to work and green ourselves up good with a trillion dollars. It calls for eliminating certain Cold War weapons and scaling back our commitments overseas. In the short term, rebuilding our economy and creating jobs will remain our nation's top priority. But it is essential that we begin to address the issue of excessive military spending in order to ensure prosperity in the future. Yeah, our kids, our grandkids are going to be carrying this crippling burden of military expenditure. We've got to take that burden off their backs. We may not agree on what to do. This is Barney and Paul talking now. We may not agree on what to do with the estimated $1 trillion in savings. But we do agree that nothing either of us cares about deeply will be possible if we do not begin to face this issue now. Hooray for Barney and hooray for Ron. Sweet little Jerry got her hands in her pockets and she's waiting for a downtown train. The high heel boots with the straps on low and her head hanging down in shame. Oh, 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 The wolves all dress up just like sheep and they go and hit the town. And Sharon never sees them, but they're hanging all around. You'll see, yeah, I'm tempted by the cherry. Sweet little Jerry got a switchblade, Jimmy, come to take her down at 4th and May. Her mind in a haze of the better days before her body was an ad campaign. And pocketbooks are all that she receives. The dashboard dogs and backseat hogs and down onto her knees. Yeah, I am tempted, I am weak. Yeah. 
Screed About Your Health is written by Dr. Joseph Mercola in the Huff and Puff. Aspartine is the most controversial food additive in history. Its approval for use in food was the most contested in FDA history. In the end, the artificial sweetener was approved not on scientific grounds, but rather because of strong political and financial pressure. Uh-huh. Aspartine was previously listed by the Pentagon as a biochemical warfare agent. Sold commercially under names like NutraSweet, Candorel, and now AminoSweet, aspartame can be found in more than 6,000 foods, including soft drinks, chewing gum, tabletop sweeteners, diet and diabetic foods, breakfast cereals, jams, sweets, vitamins, prescription, and over-the-counter drugs. Aspartame producer Ajinamoto. Now, Ajinamoto is Japanese for monosodium glutamate, another dangerous chemical. They used, or still use, so much Ajinomoto in Japan that they named a huge corporation after it. And guess what? It also turns out aspartame. Yep. Well, they're going to rebrand it, though. These guys just just want to give it another name, another spin, under the name AminoSweet. To remind the industry, this is a quote, that aspartine tastes just like sugar and that it's made from amino acids, the building blocks of protein that are abundant in our diet. Yeah, 
But that's a terrible name for a product. Honey, can I have another amino sweet in my coffee? I just don't think that's going to fly. And you're not going to fly very far if you put a lot of that amino sweet in you. Ajinomoto's agenda is to make you believe that aspartame is somehow a harmless natural sweetener made with two amino acids that are essential for health and present in your diet already. Not they want you to believe aspartame delivers all the benefits of sugar and none of its drawbacks, but nothing could be further from the truth. There have been more reports to the FDA for aspartame reactions than for all other food additives combined, over 10,000 official complaints in all, but by the FDA's own admission, less than 1% of those who experience your reaction to a product ever reported. So in all likelihood, the toxic effects of aspartame may, be, may have affected roughly a million people already. And you got to remember, too, that... Uh, doctors are not hip to this, so they may not be diagnosing uh, symptoms from aspartame. They may be, you know, giving it a whole nother name. While a variety of symptoms have been reported, almost two-thirds of them fall into the neurological and behavioral category, consisting mostly of headaches, mood alterations, and hallucinations. Honey, can I have some more of that amino sweet? Those little guys with the melty hats coming out of the wall are telling me to do it. One of the reasons for this side effect, researchers have discovered, is because the phenylalanine and aspartame disassociates from the ester bond. While these amino acids are indeed completely natural and safe, they were never designed to be ingested as isolated amino acids in massive quantities, which in and of itself will cause complications. You know, it's just do it, modern science, throw the white coats at it, we'll find out if it kills people later. Ajinamoto. That might be Japanese for... Just eat it. Additionally, this will also increase dopamine levels in your brain. This can lead to symptoms of depression because it distorts your serotonin-dopamine balance. It can also lead to migraine headaches and brain tumors through a similar mechanism. The aspartic acid in aspartame is a well-documented excitotoxin. Excitotoxins are usually amino acids such as glutamate and aspartate. These special amino acids cause particular brain cells to become excessively excited to the point that they die. Yeah, on the street, what I heard about aspartame, which I think also is taken from grapefruits, is that it causes brain fever. It heats up your brain. The problem is our excessive demand for the sweet taste. It's one of the root causes of the obesity crisis in America. Maybe we should declare a war on fat, a war on obesity, the way we declare a war on everything else that threatens our American dream lifestyle. But wait a minute. Sugar is the American dream. Hello, egg eaters. I'm Ollie, the California egg, and I'm guaranteed free by Arnold the Governor. Yep, me and my Humpty Dumpty bros popped out of a happy hen. That's right. Mom can stretch out her wings without touching another hen. Ooh, they hate that. Or the wires of the cage. And that's a setting. And a standing up. Which is hard to do if you're an egg. So <laughs> ovophiles everywhere, free your inner chicken. Eat us. We're freedom eggs from the hens that laid the golden state. Now let's see if we can liberate Mama Sal. And baby calf. And Mr. Goose. Liver. This message not brought to you by the international cruelty to food industry. Well, here's a commentary by Jacob Weisberg, who's the chairman of the Slate Group on poor old Senator Dangfence. It comes out of Newsweek. 
Says Jacob, I've stopped reading news about John McCain for the same reason I tune out the daily updates on Afghanistan and the BP oil spill. It's too damn depressing. Well, into the 2008 primary season, McCain showed glimmers of his old gutsy independent spirit. But since losing to Barack Obama, however, he's turned into that kind of party hack he once lived to mess with. Ain't it true? It's hard to believe that this is the same guy who, a decade ago, was denouncing Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson as agents of intolerance, who reduced Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell to a sputtering rage with his efforts to ban soft money, who opposed George W. Bush's tax cuts, and who stood up to Dick Cheney, of all people, right, stood, stood up to him on the whole issue of torture. That was our, that was our man, Mr. Straight Talk, John McCain. Well, when McCain told Newsweek earlier this year that he never considered himself a maverick, it sounded like another confession under duress with the Tea Party standing in for the Viet Cong. Running for president in 2008 was as bad for McCain as running in 2000 was good for him. Playing the rebel against the Republican establishment made him young again. Running as his party's standard bearer turned him into a grumpy old man. McCain looks to me, this is to Jacob Weisberg, like someone who bears an unacknowledged weight, and if I had to guess, I'd say the weight was his shame over his poorly executed presidential campaign and his awful choice of Sarah Palin as his running mate. <laughs> in the past, McCain has dealt with fractures in his sense of honor in extraordinary ways. This is true. When he succumbed to Vietnamese torture, and I probably would have myself, I surely don't blame him for signing whatever it was, and he signed that confession as a POW, he attempted suicide. He said, I felt it blemished my record permanently, and even today I find it hard to suppress feelings of remorse, he wrote in his first book. Well, don't be ashamed, John. You are under torture. Years after the Keating Five scandal, McCain wrote that the episode still provides a vague but real feeling that I had lost something very important, something that was sacrificed in the pursuit of gratifying ambitions. Mm-hmm. If, as I suspect McCain uh, relives his 2008 experience as a shame on the scale of these events, he can't simply apologize again. Acknowledging his mistake in picking Palin, someone he knows to have been utterly unable and unready to become leader of the free world, well, that would be politically suicidal. Toadying to the right wing of the party has left McCain angry and frustrated and is, to his old admirers, deeply disappointing. But as disappointed as some of us may be with the new John McCain, I expect he is even more disappointed with himself. When you can't stand the pace In the big rodent race Come on in where it's safe Where the menu is trained There's a smell in the air that reminds you of hair You've got something to get And it looks like your pain Aren't you hungry? First we take some rat parts And fry them up real nice Then we skin the kitties And barbecue the mice Guts in a cup Yum! Mouse on a stick
Too much time spent watching television and playing video games can double the risk of attention problems in children and young adults, according to a study recently published in the July issue of Pediatrics and reported in McNewspaper. The study is the latest of many to point out the ill effects of excessive screen time, whether at the computer or the television. Researcher Edward Swing, a graduate student at Iowa State University, compared participants who watched TV or played video games less than two hours a day. The recommendation from the American Academy of Pediatrics for children aged two or older to those who watched more and sometimes a lot more. Those who exceeded the AAP recommendation were about 1.6 times to 2.2 times more likely to have greater than average attention problems, he said. Attention problems in school, major. It affects not only the person who's suffering from it, but everybody around him. Swing and his colleagues um, assessed more than 1,300 children in the third, fourth, and fifth grades over a 13-month time period. The children were, were reporting their TV and video game use, and the parents were also reporting TV and video game use. The teachers were reporting the attention problems. Children had problems staying on task and paying attention. They interrupted other children's work and showed problems in other areas that reflected trouble with attention. So, how? Here's a question. How are we as parents or educators or just plain folks who don't want to live in an increasingly restive, dumbed-down country, how do we uh, take action against this scourge of mindless TV and Nintendo thumb candy? Hey, I'm not talking to you as if I'm not part of it. I've, I have definitely, you know, glazed out in, uh, in front of televisions in my life, and I've played a lot of video games. I know where it's at. But I wasn't in the fourth grade. It's pretty deeply set in our culture. Together, these video games and TV make a cheap all-day and all-night babysitter for parents who don't have the resources or the will to be real parents. Real parents, not the scripted cliches on the tube or the sprightly avatars on the game screen. It's all part of a much bigger challenge. How do we get America back to being real? Well, the medical marijuana market is now legal in 14 states and is being seriously considered by 12 others, which may benefit sick people. In fact, it does benefit sick people, but it has proved a headache for regulators. Well, maybe they ought to smoke some, some dew to get rid of that headache. Because here's their headache. Unlicensed dispensaries, crooked doctors, and fake medical need cases have plagued early adopters like Colorado and California. For states that want the benefits of medicinal weed without the threat of a freewheeling pot culture, New Jersey may have found the answer. State control. Why is that always the answer from government? I'll tell you what we need here. We need some more fine, homegrown, uh, shade-cultivated state control. Yeah, it may not be a good answer, but <laughs> it's an answer. Governor Chris Christie recently approved a law allowing prescription marijuana, but he has put it on hold while he explores making Rutgers University the sole grower and state-approved hospitals the sole suppliers. This first-of-a-kind idea has drawn fire from patient advocates who worry that an official monopoly would limit both the variety of herb and the number of outlets, making it harder for people to fill their doctor's orders. Yeah, you got to go to the hospital, get some of that Rutgers boo. We'll talk about that in a minute. 
But as Colorado and California struggle to rein in their markets retroactively, the New Jersey model may emerge as a politically attractive middle ground. I really fear those terms. Politically attractive middle ground. There's something phony about that. This is a way a lawmaker, they say, can look cool, but not soft. I kind of like cool and soft, but it's just a personal taste. The state's example could catch on, said a Christie spokesman, if we do this right. Yeah, fat chance that will happen. Okay, Rutgers is a fine university. It's, it's one of the oldest colleges in America. But it is not known for growing killer weed. And that's what medical marijuana is in California. Totally killer gauge. One puff, that's enough stuff. Unless Rutgers calls in the lads from Northern California who know how to bolt that sensimia, the U is going to be turning out nothing but sticks and seeds. And the New Jersey governor doesn't get it. Medical marijuana is supposed to be administered with as much latitude and laxity as possible. That's why Obama told the DEA to put busting medical marijuana facilities at the very bottom of their list. Grass isn't a gateway to heroin, as the old accepted wisdom goes, but medical marijuana is a gateway to the total decriminalization of the plant.
Well, the Washington Post tells us the liberals are getting together and striking back. They say if imitation is the highest form of flattery, the Tea Party movement must be honored by what's happening. In an effort to replicate the Tea Party success and their passion, 170 liberal and civil rights groups are forming a coalition they hope will match the movement's political energy and influence and hopefully be a whole lot smarter. The groups promise to counter the Tea Party initiative and help the progressive movement find its voice again after 18 months of floundering. The progressive movement has been floundering for a lot of reasons. One, because people don't really have a real idea of what progressive is. Is it socialist? Is it liberal? Is it green? Is it, you know, gender blind? What is it? You know, so we don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be just as passionate and, and just as out there as the Tea Party. Good luck. The large-scale attempt at liberal unity, dubbed One Nation, will try to revive themes that energized the progressive grassroots two years ago. In a repurposing of Barack Obama's campaign slogan, organizers are demanding all the change they voted for. A poke, of course, at the Obama administration. Yeah, One Nation was born of necessity. At one of the first meetings, Deepak Bhargava, executive director of Center for Community Change, says, raise your hand if you can push your part of the agenda all by yourself. No hands went up. A proposed overhaul of immigration law is virtually dead this year. Legislation that labor unions say would make it easier for them to grow their membership is stalled in Congress. The jobless rate is 15.4% for blacks and 12.4% for Hispanics, compared with 8.6% for whites. And you know, that's the official jobless rate. God knows how many people without a job aren't being counted out there. Then add in the 700,000 census workers who are about to be let go. So... Having been confronted with the specter of the Tea Party, we felt it urgent to organize the majority of this country, which voted in 2008 and has gone back to the couch, said Benjamin Jealous of the NAACP. The groups represent the core of the first-time voters who backed President Obama, including National Council of La Raza, NCLR, NAACP, AFL-CIO, SEIU, and the United States Student Association. The effort is separate from the Democratic Party's plan to spend 50 million dollars to try and reach these same voters. By the way, a long time ago, I was offered the international vice presidency of the uh, National Student Association, not knowing at the time that it was a CIA front and I was being prepared for bigger and better things in the CIA. Aha! Well, this aha moment for them at least, the One Nation, happened after the health care overhaul passed in the spring. Liberal groups, which focus their collective strength to push the bill against heavy resistance, now feel relevant and and effective for, for, for being, you know, in front for the first time in a long time. And they did a good job, by the way. There really was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of good work done. Otherwise, those bozos in Congress would never have come through. The Healthcare Coalition, Composed of civil rights groups, student activists, and labor leaders liked the winning feeling. In many ways, says this is a quote, the bitter fight for health care reform has painfully highlighted what that we must go back to the grassroots organizing that won us the election in the first place, said George Gershom, president of uh, 1199 SEIU, United Healthcare Workers East. We must reassert our strength as the social movement that ushered Obama into office. 
coalition's first goal is to plan a march to demonstrate to Congress that these agenda items have support across multiple demographics. Boy, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Jealous said. The demonstration to be held October 2nd will center on pressing for more government spending on job creation. The effort has a historical parallel in a story that Obama has told on the campaign trail, a a story I'm familiar with as a student of FDR. According to the story, when labor organizer and civil rights leader A. Philip Randolph met with President Franklin Roosevelt to press his issues, most of which were civil rights issues at the time, they were you know, incipient civil rights issues, Roosevelt told Randolph he agreed with him, but that Randolph should go out and make me do it. So I guess one nation is just going to go out and make them do it. Well, you just do that. You know, sometimes the New York Times obituaries, which (laughs) being an elderly gentleman as I am, I always read, hoping not to find any of my friends. Or yourself in it. Or myself. I found myself in the New York Times obituary. Oh, boy. But on July 13th, the whole page of the obituary, two very famous people in in kind of our world, Harvey Pekar, the uh, American splendor guy, Mm -hmm. died at 70. Right. And... Tuli Kupferberg, 86, the great bohemian, one of the founders of the Fugs. He did find it. He, he, he found it. He was them. the guy. And, you know, I had to go to my record library where I pulled out the Fugs, the original two albums. And here's Ed Sanders and Tuli and Ken Weaver and the rest of the guys singing Kill for Peace. <laughs> group Grope, Frenzy, Dirty Old Man. And uh, uh, and those wonderful William Blake things that Sanders did, Supergirl and Seize the Day and Boobs a Lot. Those were great records, man. We couldn't play any of them on the radio. Well, I did. Remember what happened to me? I played Johnny Pissoff on KMET in, in Los Angeles, dedicated it to the FCC and got fired. One of my many firings from radio. So I have to thank Thule for that. You want to tell us a little bit about well, this, Well, he, uh, he was 86, as I said, and uh, he'd been in poor health for quite a while. Uh, he was a guy who who uh, was always a bohemian in New York. He got into New York. As a matter of fact, his whole story is told in a wonderful book called The Beats, A Graphic History, which the text of which is written by Harvey Picard. Oh, really? So I suggest taking a look at at that if people want to know any more. The, uh, the, the, the Fugs... Um, First album was released in 1965. Uh, Kupferberg was the, like uh, their their harlequin, their clown. Their you know, this guy had been around on the streets of Greenwich for Greenwich Village for so long, and when I met and interviewed him, he was just he was a just a great figure, almost because he was so much older than I was. You know, like a legend, like a legendary guy. Yeah. So um, so yeah yeah I'll read a poem of his uh, at the end of the show today. But Harvey. Now, you- Harvey Picar, believe it or not, graduated like myself from Shaker Heights High School in 1957. Yeah, really, Harvey. Wow. He was he was something then. And the thing that's amazing about Harvey, not only did he stay in Cleveland, he went blue collar from the get-go. He had a job in, you know, just a a file clerk in the cancer ward and stayed there the whole time and developed this extraordinary career as an underground uh, uh textural artist, you know. Yeah, writer. he wasn't the cartoonist. No, he, he, had, he, 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 he wrote the libretto. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then R. Crumb came in, or another artist came in and did the pictures. Yeah, well, here's, the, here's my story with R. Crumb and, and, and Harvey, mm-hmm. is that um, 
when I was in Cleveland, one of the jobs I had was at American Greeting Cards, which is a huge greeting card company. And they'd started this kind of like offshoot called a hi hat, which was their funny cards, mm-hmm. right? And I was working there and, you know, team around the table making up these funny cards. And uh, I'd been there like a week or so, already turned out a really dandy card. I remember <laughs> it said, uh, showed a guy in a graduation gown and said, uh, You're graduating, you're prepared for the future, your eyes are bright, your, your jaw is firm, you open up, and your fly is open. Yeah, yeah. great, huh? But so a lot. So uh, uh-huh. then about a week in, two weeks in, they come give me this piece of paper from Human Resources to sign. And at the bottom of the employment form, I have to sign a loyalty oath. I am not now, never have been a member of the United States, uh, anything that will overthrow the United States government, et cetera, et cetera. I yeah. said, no, I won't do this. So they, they put pressure on me to do it. And the next day I showed up, or two days later, I showed up in, in an army helmet and a fake rifle. And I, uh, and I went around the room guarding the room against communists. I was out. You were gone. And that you know who took my, took my place? R. Crumb. Yeah, yeah. He was, ne- <laughs> he was next in line. So anyway, with Harvey, you know, uh, famous curmudgeon, right? So I went back for my 50th. Uh, at Shaker Heights High School, and I called him ahead of time from here because I'd kept in contact with him. I said, Harvey, you're going to be at the uh, reunion. Why did you not go to the reunion? I said, well, you know, okay, well, let me come by. I'll say hello. Why do I want to see you? I said, okay, that's it, Harvey. I said, you can do the whole curmudgeon thing for the rest of the world. You can make a fortune being a curmudgeon. I don't care. Maybe your girlfriend likes it in bed. It's me, Peter Bergman. Stop it. Okay, come on over. So I went over. We spent some time. His lovely wife, who really was kind of like making his world for him, right? Mm-hmm. And we went and talked, and he's just one of the sweetest people in the world, and to my mind, one of the most unusual, dedicated, and pure artists we've ever had. Well, uh, there's two of them together, and they're on the same bus. Yes, they they're are. The and they bus. are going to beat heaven. Oh, my home. Yeah, they, well, they, they beat the rap, and now they're going to beat heaven. Yeah, the Alpha and the Omega, we're at the Omega, the end of the show, and we're going to uh, do something special because we did an obit on Tuli Kupferberg, and Dave, you're going to read one of his poems for I us. I am. This is from, I just got a copy of The Beat Scene, which I lost a long time ago. This is a classic from 1960, and it's got poems by everybody who was happening back then, including Tuli, and here, just a bit of Greenwich Village of my dreams to go out on. Oh, the times they were. A rose in a stone, chariots on the west side highway, blues in the Soviet Union, onions in Times Square, a Japanese in Chinatown, a soup sandwich, a Hudson terraplane, chess in a Catskill bungalow, awnings in Atlanta, Lewison Stadium in the blackout, Brooklyn beneath the East River, the waves pass over, the battery in startling sunlight, Kleins in Orbach's, Love on the Dole, Roosevelt not elected, Hoover under the Third Avenue L, Joe Gould kissing Maxwell Bodenheim and puffing on his pipe, Edna Malay feeling Edmund Wilson, Charlie Parker and Ted Jones talking in Sheridan Square Park, and it's cold, man, the Cedar Street bar with cedars in it, and autos crashing against the cedars, the Chase Manhattan Bank closed down for repairs to open as the new Waldorf cafeteria, Lionel Trilling kissing Allen Ginsberg after great reading in the gaslight, the limelight changes its name to the electric light and features Charlie Chaplin as a swinging waiter, Edgar Allan Poe becoming the dentist in the Waverly Dispensary and giving everyone free nitrous oxide high. Yeah. Thank you, Tuli. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Rest in Greenwich Village in peace. 
Radio Free Oz. Here's the Oz team. I'm your host, Peter Bergman, co-host David Osmond. Scott Wilde, well, he does all that super media for us. Bill McIntyre produces it. Dave Maloney records it. Chaz Glass keeps the numbers. Tom Gedwillow makes the website happen. Phil Fountain, well, he's the Oz Design Group. He's real pretty. And John Cummins, he's our advisor. Tomorrow, yes, tomorrow.